When you have a problem, pray. When you pray, one, declare who God is. Two, remember God's faithfulness in the past. And three, depends on God's promises in the future. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles. Uh, today we're going to be in 2 Chronicles. I know we've been in Kings. We're doing this kind of sequentially, but we're going to be moving back and forth between Kings and Chronicles. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Jehoshaphat. As you know, we've been in the study of the kings of uh, Israel and Judah. They're biographical sketches, historical narratives about their lives. And one of the advantages of biography is it's extraordinarily practical. Everybody in Scripture is either an example do what they did, or a warning, do not do what they did. The last several weeks we've been studying the life of Ahab, what not to do. And today, Lord willing, we'll look at one of Judah's eight righteous kings named Jehoshaphat. And as you recall, last week we went through the battle at Ramoth-Gilead. Good King Jehoshaphat had made an alliance with wicked King Ahab. They went and invaded uh, Syria, actually a border town called Ramoth-Gilead, trying to capture it, and they failed. In that attempt, Ahab was killed, and Jehoshaphat could have been killed, except God intervened and spared his life. So today we're going to take a look at Jehoshaphat's life following that event. So if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked? And love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord. But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Ashtaroth from the land, and have set your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land, and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for men, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Here's the principle. Spiritual leaders prioritize teaching God's word to God's people and helping them do what it says. Spiritual leaders prioritize teaching God's word to God's people and helping them do what it says. Now, within a couple of weeks, uh, before this event, maybe even only a week or so, Jehoshaphat has been in Ramoth Gilead, and he is almost killed by the Aramean charioteers. Remember that he was counseled by King Ahab to wear his royal robes going into the battle, and Ahab disguised himself as a common soldier. Clearly, Ahab was hoping that they would kill Jehoshaphat, thinking that it was him. Now, this is the kind of person you want to do an alliance with, right? Someone who's willing to sell you over the river and hope that you get killed instead of them. So Jehoshaphat is now coming home. Before he gets inside the city walls into his own house, God sends Jehu, the son of Hanai, the seer, the prophet, and tells him a word from the Lord before he gets home. And God confronts Jehoshaphat with his sin of helping the wicked and loving those who hate God. He should not have made an alliance with a wicked king like Ahab. The normal consequences of this behavior is wrath and judgment of God. However, coupled with that, God says there is some good in you. You did destroy the Ashtaroth, which was a um, part of the Baal worship, and you have... Um, Set your heart to seek the Lord. I want to discuss that briefly. Setting your heart to seek the Lord is not something that happens by accident. Setting the Lord to seek your heart, knowing the Lord, requires intention, requires discipline, and requires sacrifice. David said in Psalm 27, One thing 
one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall see, that I may dwell on the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Verse 8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, quote, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. You know, we ask the Lord a lot of things. We talk to the Lord about a lot of stuff. If you made a, a record of your prayer requests to the Lord for the last year and read them back, some of them would be humorous, some of them would be downright sad, and some of them you couldn't believe came out of your mouth, right? That's just how we are with the Lord. You know, we kind of we go to the Lord and whatever's top of mind, we kind of dump on him, right? Lord, you know, I was thinking, right? David said, I'm really only asking one thing of God. One thing. I want a deeper relationship with you. I want to know you better. And it's, you know, it's one thing to say, I want a deeper relationship with the Lord. It's another thing to actually demonstrate that by doing something about it. It's been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let me give you a rule of thumb. If you say you want something, anything, doesn't matter what it is, if you say you want something and it doesn't change your behavior or your schedule, you don't want it. If you say you want something and it doesn't change your behavior or your schedule, you lie to yourself, right? It ain't going to happen because you don't care enough to make the changes in your life for that to happen. Seeking the Lord means more than desire. It means discipline. It says I'm going to do the things required to have a relationship with the Lord. You say, what will that be? Well, if you want a relationship with another human being, what do you do? You make time in your calendar for that person. Right? Love is spelled a four-letter word. T-I-M-E. If you say, I love you, but I never have time for you, guess what? You don't love them. Time means love. God told David, seek my face. Pursue me. I'm available. I want a relationship with you, David. David said, I will seek your face. I will make knowing you the number one priority in my life. By the way, this seek your face, it has the connotation of intimacy. You know when your grandchildren look right in your eyes, or your children, they grab your face, and they go, Papa, Grams, whatever it happens to be, seek your face. It's an intimate term. It's face to face. It means I want to know you. Intimacy, affection, and love. And that's what David wanted with the Lord, and God took him seriously. Now, Jehoshaphat also took God seriously. Not just for himself, but it says for the entire nation. If you read a couple chapters earlier in chapter 17, it records that a few years before then, he had sent officials and priests and Levites throughout the whole land, doing what? Teaching them God's word. Teaching them what the Mosaic said about God, what the Mosaic law said. Remember, in that day, everything was handwritten. It was all on scrolls, and the priests actually wrote it down, the scribes. So no one had a copy of the Bible of the Old Testament Pentateuch in their tent, right? It didn't exist. The priests had a copy, and they went and orally taught the people of the land the Word of God. So we live in La La Land. We actually have multiple copies of God's Word in our home and in our lap and online anywhere, anytime. So we have far less excuse. If they want to know what God said, they actually had to be taught God's Word. We can actually open it and read it ourselves. See, people need to know what God says and what to do about what God says. God said, I want you to tear down all the idols in the land. Now, it's one thing to tear down the idols in the land because the king says so. It's another thing to tear down the idols in the land because God says so and tells you why he wants you to do that. Jehoshaphat, it says, very interesting, it says he personally traveled throughout the land of Judah and brought people back to the Lord. Personally. Like a shepherd bringing sheep back to the fold. Who does that remind you of in the New Testament? Jesus went throughout the land, what? Doing good, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, like a shepherd bringing sheep back to the fold. Jehoshaphat's like a circuit-riding preacher a couple hundred years ago. He travels throughout the countryside. He gets outside the comforts of the palace because he's concerned about the spiritual condition of his people. Now, that is an extraordinarily good model for us. Do we care enough about our family and friends and neighbors and colleagues and coworkers, etc., that we're willing to be available to them where they are, 
to bring them back to the Lord. It also says that Jehoshaphat reformed the judicial system. It said he appointed judges in every region, and he said, you are accountable to God to be diligent in your duties. You represent God, you just don't represent people. You need to judge righteously. You need to judge according to the law, not selfishly or corruptly. And by the way, that's true of us today. Our job description is Jehoshaphat's. We're called to do what? Bring lost people to who? The Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. We represent God to the world. This is going to be hard to believe, but there are people in your life right now who don't know Jesus. Actually, they do. The Jesus they know is you. You represent Jesus Christ to them. So when they say, well, I've heard about this Jesus, and he's like my friend so-and-so because they claim, to be, they claim to belong to him. So when we speak or act, the watching world concludes the what? Our God is like us because we say that he lives inside us, which he does. So we need to be living in a way that accurately represents the God who we say lives inside us. That way the world will know who God is and they'll want a relationship with him. That's what Jehoshaphat did. Very, very righteous man at this point in his life. If you go over to chapter 20, verse 1, it said, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, quote, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord, and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nation? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them, see how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against you, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Here's the principle. When you have a problem, not if you have a problem, when you, just wait, sooner or later you will have one, right? When you have a problem, pray. When you pray, declare who God is, remember God's faithfulness in the past, and depend on God's promises for the future. When you have a problem, pray. When you pray, one, declare who God is. Two, remember God's faithfulness in the past. And three, depends on God's promises in the future. Now, Jehoshaphat has spent, apparently, some period of time following this war at Ramoth-Gilead. He spent his time traveling throughout the nation, strengthening his people spiritually, bringing them back to the Lord, and now he faces an imminent invasion. Moab and Ammon were sons of Lot. Remember the nephew of Abraham. They live on the east side of the Jordan River, east side of the Dead Sea. The Meunites is another word for people who live in the territory of Edom, E-D-O-M. And they were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. So these are relatives of Israel, right? Now, when Israel came out of Egypt, they passed around the Dead Sea toward the Promised Land, and they were going to travel through Edom and Moab to get to the Promised Land, and they refused to let them pass. And God said, don't fight with these nations. They're blood relatives, right? They're blood relatives. You can't go to war with them. 
And now they're being invaded by their own relatives, which of course happens to you on weekend holidays, right? You get invaded by your own relatives, right? So these nations have in, are invading Israel by coming around the south end of the Dead Sea and then moving north, right? That would keep them relatively invisible until they get pretty close to Jerusalem. Now, En Gedi was an oasis. Obviously, we know David spent some time there. It was, had a water, a series of uh, water courses there at that point, and it was near the western edge of the Dead Sea. I've been there on a couple of occasions, and I mean, it's an oasis in the middle of hot, dry sand, right? So if you don't have water there, you're not going to have a, uh, an army for sure. So Jehoshaphat's got a reconnaissance report of this invasion, and he is rightfully afraid. This is a very large army. One of the things we don't necessarily put two and two together is when Jehu pronounced judgment on Jehoshaphat for making an alliance with Ahab, he says, this kind of behavior is going to bring the wrath of God on you. Very shortly thereafter, he's invaded by these people. I wonder if Jehoshaphat thought, I wonder if this is God's judgment on me for making an alliance with evil. Don't know. Doesn't say. But here's how he responded. So our first, first part of the principles, when you have a problem, pray. Now, I'm amazed at how many times we do everything but pray before we get there. You know, prayer is kind of the last resort as opposed to the first resort. So... Judah, at this point in time, has got a significant million-man army. Jehoshaphat could have trusted them. Jehoshaphat could have sought an alliance with another kingdom, but instead he seeks God. First thing, he prays. Many people, matter of fact, I'd say most people, when they're healthy, wealthy, and powerful, they don't turn to God and depend on him. They turn away from God and they trust in their own strength. Now, it's a measure of Jehoshaphat's growing maturity that he trusted God even though he was in a position of human strength. By the way, this is not his first invasion. Several weeks ago, we looked at King Asa, which is Jehoshaphat's father. Now, in 901 BC, a couple decades earlier than this, actually three or four decades, Judah was invaded by a million-man army from Cush in Egypt. Jehoshaphat would have been about seven years old during the time of that invasion. And as you remember, God miraculously rescued King Asa and Judah from that million-person army, and I think that made a, a huge impression on, on Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat prays, but he calls for a national day of prayer, a national time of prayer and fasting. Um, people walked from all over the nation to come to Jerusalem. You know, we take this for granted. It says they all came to Jerusalem, and it tells you they came with their little ones, their children, their families. And we think, well, it's no problem. Jerusalem's only 25, 30 miles, maybe 40 miles. Just jump in the car and go. You get there in 20 minutes. No, they, they, they walked. You know what that is? W-A-L-K. No Segway, no bike. No, they W-A-L-K. They walked, which means it could take a day or two to get you to Jerusalem for this prayer meeting. So this is, this is not a small commitment. There are invaded, this is a national crisis. The government could be overthrown, they could wind up being slaves to Edom and Ammon, so they prayed. How did they pray? Well, the first thing Joshua did is he declared who God is. He begins his prayer by what? He acknowledging that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, was the almighty creator of the heavens and of the earth. He says, God, you created everything. You rule over everything and everyone. You rule over all the nations, including these three nations that are invading us at this point in time. God, your power is infinite. No one can thwart or stand against your power. And I think this is probably violated by Christians more than anything else. When we have something on our mind we want to talk to God about, generally we walk in and say, Oh God, and then we tell him what we want. Isn't that right? We tell him what's bugging us. Lord, you know about so-and-so. I need you to fix that. And my kids and grandkids and that job and this finances. So we immediately, we tell him what? Our point of view about our problem that we want him to fix. Joshua doesn't do that. He says, God, let me remind you who you are. 
Who am I talking to when I'm praying? You're talking to the Lord of glory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, I don't know what your problem is. Problems, I have multiple ones like you, but whatever your problem is, whatever your need is, whoever your enemy, whatever your stress point, the God you are talking to is Lord of that situation. He is master of that situation. There's nothing going on with your body health-wise that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords whom you're talking to, is not master of. Yes? We need to remember that when we pray, before we bring our requests or our praises, we need to remember who God is. It would have a massive impact on how we pray if we start by saying, God, this is who you are. You're the Almighty God. You're completely in control of all things. You created the heavens and the earth, and yet you love me and adopted me in your family. And then you have a conversation based on who you're talking to. We often talk to the Lord and not really remember who we're talking to. We talk to him like we have to inform him about the problem because he won't know if we don't tell him. And actually, we have to really persuade him to do the right thing. Lord, you really need to take action here because do you think he knows? I mean, he's what? Sovereign? He's creator? He's God? We need to remember who he is first. Number two, remember and remind God of his past faithfulness. So Joshua says, Lord, remember, this land belongs to you. This land is not ours. This land is yours. You drove out the Canaanites so we could have live in this land, but you own the land. You promised to give it to Abraham. You kept your promise to Abraham. We built a sanctuary to you in Jerusalem so that we could worship you. And you promised, Lord, that if evil came upon this nation, if we came to this temple, if we cried out to you, if we asked for forgiveness, you promised that you would hear. And you said, you told us, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. God's people do four things. God will do three things. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal the land. The Lord made that promise. Jehoshaphat's reminding God of his promises. By the way, if you want God to hear you, a really good way is remind him what he promised already. Thank him for his past faithfulness before you bring your current heartburn to him, because he's already answered hundreds of prayers in our lives. It was always a good idea to remember to thank him for what he's done. God has always been faithful in the past. He's always done exactly as he promised. So after you remember who he is, after you thank him for his past faithfulness, then you can say, Lord, I'm depending 100% on you for this current issue in my life. And Joshua, Joshaphat says, Lord, we're powerless. We don't have any capacity to deal with this problem. This army's too big for us. I think sometimes... We pray, and I don't know that we are convinced that there's nothing we can do about it. I think we want God's help, but we really want to do our part. And I'm not saying you don't have a part. I'm saying ultimately the problem belongs to God. We're going to talk about that here in a second. Josh Fed says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. Here's the first thing Jehoshaphat does not do. He does not tell God how to solve the problem. It's okay to bring a problem to the Lord and say, Lord, here's my perspective on this problem. But most of the time we go one step beyond that. We tell God how he should fix it, don't we? Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want you to clean their clock, right? Or I need you to do this. Or I want you to change their heart. You know, they need to be humbled before you. Cut them off the ankles, right? I mean, whatever it happens to be, right? So he doesn't tell God how to solve the problem. He brings the problem before the Lord as he sees it, but he doesn't tell God how to fix it. He throws himself completely on God's power and promises. It's like basketball. You're in the final second of the game. It's a tie score. It's a championship game. If you get the ball, your job is to get the ball to Michael Jordan. Now, you have a problem in your life. Your challenge is to get the ball to who? God. 
which means get it into his hands, and then don't steal it back. <laughs> right? We need to stop telling God how to fix our problems. It's not that we don't bring the problem to him, but he knows what the problem is and what the solution is. God immediately responds to Jehoshaphat's prayer, verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, that's his whole history, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he says, quote, Listen all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, quote, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. You need not fight this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Here's the principle. When you surrender yourself to God, your problems are his. And so are the solutions. When you surrender yourself to God, your problems are his and so are the solutions. See, God first and foremost wants us to render ourselves to him, not the problems. Right? He wants us to surrender us. Here's the challenge. If you don't surrender yourself to God, but you do surrender the problem to God, then you just want God to solve it. You just want God to be your servant. God, I'm not going to surrender myself to you, but I'm going to surrender this problem to you. I would appreciate it if you'd take care of it. And do this, and this, and this, and this, right? So God says, I want your surrender fully to me before you surrender the problem to me. Because if you don't surrender yourself to me, we're going to have a disagreement about what the problem is. Because we think we know what the problem is. Almost always, we don't know what the problem is. We misdiagnose the problem. Only when we see it from God's point of view will we have an accurate diagnosis so we even understand what the problem is. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. He surrenders himself. Judah surrenders themselves to the Lord and says, Lord, we surrender ourselves and we don't know what to do about this problem. And Jehaziel comes to them and says, do not fear, for the battle is yours, not yours, but God's. It's not your battle to fight. God will fight this one for you. God had commanded Israel before they entered the land. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 3, quote, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save them. Jesus said in John 16.33 to his disciples, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage what? I have overcome the world. Conflict is inevitable, but God's power is greater than the world's power. The world system, as we know, is at war with God and God's people. But our faith, our hope, our joy, our confidence lies in the fact that what? God's sovereign control is over all things, and he promises to provide and protect people. Now, when you look at historically how God works through his people to win victories, sometimes he works through the people to win the battles. You know, did David, by God's power, conquer Goliath? Of course. But David actually had to pick up the stones and sling them. Right? He actually had to do something. In God's power, but he actually had to do something. Gideon actually had to break pitchers and wave torches for God to win the battle over the Midianites. Ehud, in the book of Judges, actually constructed a dagger and went to eat to uh, Eglon and stabbed him with it, right? Joshua spent most of his life under the authority of the Holy Spirit doing what? Fighting battles in Canaan. David did the same thing. So you say, well, God promises to give his people a victory, and there are times you have to get off your blessed assurance and do something, right? Like pick up the phone, like take action. 
There's other conflicts when God fights for you and you don't do anything. Right? The ten plagues in Egypt. Was there any human component to those? Other than announcing them, God did 100% of that. Opening the Red Sea. Did he get any help from Israel to open the Red Sea? They walked through on dry ground after it was done. Jehoshaphat, Asa, and Hezekiah, we're going to find out, all experienced God's supernatural victories without any human help. But that's not always the case. There are times when the Lord tells you, I'm going to do this on your behalf. Here's what I want you to do. And you take action after you've talked to him about it, not before, obviously. See, Israel still is commanded to exercise faith. He says, you have to go out to the battlefield tomorrow, which means put your armor on, go out to the battlefield, face the enemy, and then watch. But you have to go to the battlefield in order to watch what I'm going to do. So there are things that the human follower of Jesus has to do. When they hear God's promise to them, they fall on their faces and they worship the Lord. By the way, that's a very good model. Anytime God speaks to you, the right response is worship. Especially when he says no. <laughs> See, we have no problem worshiping when he says yes. We go, God, you're so good, you gave me my way. Really? I thought you surrendered yourself to him and said, Lord, I want your way. Yeah? Okay. Verse 21, when Jehoshaphat had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out from before the army. And he says, quote, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. I heard John Biller preach about verse 22 years ago. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come up against Judah so that they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one has escaped. Verse 25, and they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they bless the Lord. Here's the principle. God delights to show himself strong for those who follow him with all their heart. God delights to show himself strong for those who follow him with all their heart. I want you to think about this. You are being invaded by a force, significant invasion army force. They're right on your border just south of Jerusalem. And you're going into battle to the battleground, the Lord has promised that he's going to deliver you. You don't have to fight, you're just going to watch. And you send the musicians out front. And the soldiers are in the back. And they're singing praises to God as the nation marched toward the battlefield. They're exalting his everlasting love and his promise to fight on their behalf. Now you would, you would have to believe that they believe God's promises. Because the musicians were on the front line. I mean, a drumstick against a spear. Either you're going to believe that what God said is true, and he will deliver you, and you are praising him in advance for what he has promised to do. Question. How often do we do that when we pray? How often do we say when we have a significant problem, whether it's personal pain, health issue, family pain, relational pain, financial, whatever it is, Lord, I'm praising you in advance for whatever you choose to do with this problem. Lord, I'm praising you in advance for what you're going to teach me through this problem. Lord, I'm praising you in advance for the glory that this problem is going to bring you regardless of how you decide to deal with it. Do you believe that he is worthy of praise before the problem is fixed or only afterwards when you happen to like what he did? The truth of it is, he is God. And if you have a problem in your life, and I've got plenty of them, God custom designed those problems for our development. It has your name on it. 
And see, we say, God, would you please take the problem away? He says, no, no, no. That problem is your instruction manual. I'm making you like Jesus. This problem is a blessing because it is for your benefit. Why would I take away what I have custom designed for your benefit? And you go, Lord, um, I've got cancer. I don't think that's a blessing. God causes all things to work together for good. Even evil things. God's not the cause of evil, but he, praise his name, uses everything to shape us like Jesus Christ. Psalm 22.3 says, Yet you are holy, you who are enthroned above the praises of Israel. This is commonly translated probably in your Bible. God inhabits the praises of his people. So where there's praise, the presence of the Lord is. That's why I encourage you strongly, praise him before the request, praise him after the request, praise him regardless of what he chooses to do because he loves you. And it says that God set ambushes. Now, we're not exactly sure how God routed the enemy. Some people believe, some interpreters believe that God sent angels to begin the battle. And we don't know whether angels came, appeared like men, or whether these various tribes just fought each other out of jealousy. But it does say that the Moabites and the Ammonites fought against the Ammonites, destroyed them, and then they fought against each other. So, it was a battle of literally uh, military suicide. They just started fighting with each other. And it says when they got there, the ground was littered with corpses and there was so much booty, it took three days to collect all the spoil. And on the fourth day, they did the right thing. Barakah means blessing or praise. It was the valley where they gave thanks to the Lord for his deliverance, for his answer at a prayer and praise meeting in the valley of Barakah. It's on the road from Hebron to Jerusalem. And it, they remind us, say thank you. You know, if, our, if the ratio of our requests to our praises are not balanced, we wind up to asking God ten times and we thank him one time. God's more faithful than that. He's far more faithful than that. So it's just, it's just a reminder, make gratitude a habit. Verse 27. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. Here's the principle. God gives his People, God gives peace to his people even in the middle of crisis and conflict. God gives his peace to his people even in the middle of crisis and conflict. I'm sure that in your life and in the life of your loved ones, there's plenty of crisis and conflict to go around. You don't have to look for it. It kind of finds you, doesn't it? But God says, I am the peace that passes understanding in the middle of this. And it says, interesting, it doesn't say that God gave them victory. It says that God gave them the ability to rejoice over their enemies. And our joy, friends, does not come in our circumstances. Our joy comes from the Lord and his work on our behalf. Circumstances are never the source of your joy. If they are, you're unhappy most of the time. I don't know about your circumstances. Mine are seldom pleasant. I mean, pleasant comes and goes, right? But if you have 24 hours without any problems... I think you're in a coma, <laughs> right? I mean, problems are part of the warp and woof of life at this point. So if circumstances are the source of our joy, we're not going to have much joy. They have to be in the character and the conduct and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this was not a victory won by human effort. It was God's victory. And when did they celebrate? Up front, in advance. They had joy before the victory. They had joy when the invading army was still alive. They had joy before the chemo killed the cancer. They had joy when the relationships were broken. Does that make sense? Say yes. yes. Very good. That's a statement of faith. I know you believe that. Even though you haven't experienced it quite yet. It says the dread of God was in all the kingdoms of the lands. Well, after this... Victory, if you're a neighbor of Judah, you're thinking about attacking him, you're going, no, I'm going to mess with Judah's God, right? I mean, bad things happen to people that do that. Psalm 
Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Good, good phrase to remember, good proverb. Verse 33, The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in doing so, so he allied himself with them to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships at Ezion-Geber. And Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Marashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your work, so the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. Here's the principle. Compromising with evil is always evil no matter how good your goal is. Compromising with evil is always evil, no matter how good your goal is. So Joshua had called Judah back to the worship of Yahweh, but he, he tolerated these high places. High places were elevated man-made mounds. Generally, our hilltops were altars and sacred poles to foreign pagan gods were built. And they did burnt offerings and incense and festivals and cultic prostitution, orgies, child sacrifice. These high places were evil, wicked places. And sometimes Israel would go to these high places and worship Yahweh from these high places. But they were obviously uh, historically largely done for um, uh, pagan worship. So God had told Israel, I want you to tear those places down. I don't want you to learn their false gods. Before they got into the land, Deuteronomy 12.2, God's telling them, quote, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. It means don't become intimate with evil. Don't compromise with evil. See, in that era, it was tough. You actually had to walk up to the mound before you got covered up with evil. You know what you do today? Turn the on button on your electronic device and you can be buried in filth in about a split second. All you do is click the wrong button and all of a sudden you're covered under a garbage load of filth, right? Now, chapter 17, verse 6 says that Jehoshaphat had removed the high places earlier, but apparently Israel rebuilt them, Judah, and he tolerated that. So... Jehoshaphat's primary character flaw, character sin, was that he continually made bad alliances with evil people. It seems as though he was very bothered by the conflict between Israel and Judah. Now, Israel and Judah have been separated for 60 years, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and they've been fighting for 60 years. Jehoshaphat had a good goal. He wanted Israel and Judah to get along just like in your family, right? He wanted unity, which was a legitimate goal. But his means to achieve that goal were sinful. He made three extremely wicked alliances with, with, with Ahab. He made a political alliance with Ahab. And, of course, he sealed that by contracting a marriage between his son Jehoram and, and Ahab's daughter Athaliah. He made a military alliance with Ahab. The win of the battle at Ramoth-Gilead almost got himself killed and thirdly, he now, as we just read, made a commercial alliance and shipping alliance with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. And God told him what he thought of that. He said he acted wickedly in doing so. God was opposed to the venture and caused the ships to be broken. In 2 Chronicles or Corinthians 6.14, God commands his people to not be unequally yoked or bound together with unbelievers. When two oxen are yoked together, guess what? They are walking what? together in the same direction at the same pace. Now, alliances are yokes. Alliances are covenants that take two separate entities and make them into one. When you have an alliance, you have a legal obligation and a pooling of resources that are committed to a common goal. The problem is this. Followers of God and followers of Satan serve opposing gods, have opposite values, walk divergent paths, and guess what? They're headed for opposite destinations, right? One with God, one separated from God. So when Christians make alliances, bound together, contractual covenant alliances with people who are not people of faith, 
most of the time, the Christian is the one who winds up compromising their faith in order to keep the human relationship intact. And that's exactly what happened to Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat's son marries Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. She moves to Jerusalem. And she imports idol worship to Judah from her daddy's family, her mummy's family, right? Jehoram reigned for eight years. Athaliah is his wife, and her family in Israel become his counselors. Did you know that in-laws are influential? They are very influential. In this case, they were disastrously influential because they counseled Jehoram wickedly for eight years before he died. And after his death, his son Ahaziah became king at 22. He reigned for one year, and he was evil. And when he went to visit Ahab's son, another Jehoram, he was killed by Jehu, who was exterminating all the descendants of Ahab. When Athaliah saw that her son Ahaziah is dead, what does she do? She kills, systematically slaughters all the royal family of Judah. Any potential heir of the line of David was killed by Athaliah, Ahab's daughter, and she reigns over Israel. And if the infant Joash had not been rescued and hidden, the line of David would have been exterminated. Now that's a problem, because God promised David what? Messiah is coming from your family tree. They were within one baby of that promise not coming true. All because of what? One unequally yoked marriage. It matters. Who you are committed to matters. The Christian should not depend on alliances with people who do not follow God. You know why? You don't need alliances with people who don't follow God. You already have an eternal ally, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have an advocate with the Father. You have your defense attorney. You have your Savior and your Lord. If you enter into any human contract, I'm not talking about I can work for so-and-so. You can work for people who don't share your faith. You can hire people who don't share your faith. I'm talking about a legally binding agreement like a business partnership or a marriage. If you enter into those arrangements without God's blessing, there's a price tag, a serious price tag. It's going to compromise your relationship with the Lord. There is no goal, no matter how good, that justifies disobeying God's word. Here's a principle. You can write it down. Intimacy with evil costs you fellowship with your heavenly father. Intimacy with evil costs you fellowship with your heavenly father. See, no parent would allow their five-year-old to sign a contract without their approval. At least I think they wouldn't. In today's culture, sometimes I wonder about things, right? But here's the point. Who is your father? Your heavenly father who loves you. Our heavenly father says, don't make binding agreements with people outside my family. Don't bind yourself to someone who's not following me. Does that make sense? I know you're nodding. One of the advantages of Jehoshaphat's life is we can look at the wonderful things he did and we can look at the foolish things he did and scripture says they were written for our instruction. So anytime you read biblical characters and historical narrative, you're going to find things that God says they did well, you should emulate, and even in God's people, with only one or two exceptions, there's always something recorded where they sinned, where they slipped, where they stumbled, where they made errors, and the Lord says, pay attention to that, learn from that, don't do that. So Jehoshaphat, even though he's a righteous king and God gives him very much a thumbs up for being a good king and a righteous king, did some things that God said that was wicked. And we should learn from that so we do not follow in those footsteps. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll have Tom do prayer and praise. Spiritual leaders, by the way, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you are a spiritual leader. If you have nieces or nephews, you're a spiritual leader. What I'm saying is, if you're breathing, you're a spiritual leader because people are watching you. You prioritize teaching people God's word and helping them do what it says. And the last phrase is really important because if you know what God says and you don't do what God says, 
you're now accountable for more than if you didn't know in the first place. Number two, when you have a problem, pray. I know that sounds so obvious, but it's really important that you do it first, right? Pray. And when you pray, first, declare who God is. Don't forget who you're talking to. When you pray, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Thank him for being faithful in the past. And number three, depend on God's promises for the future. When you surrender yourself to God, your problems are his and so are the solutions. Remember we talked about if you surrender the problem to God and you don't surrender yourself to God. Here's how you know you haven't surrendered yourself to God. When you're telling him what to do. Anytime you tell God what to do, you have not surrendered yourself to God. You might have said, Lord, I want you to deal with the problem, but you haven't surrendered yourself. When you surrender yourself, you say, Lord, I want what you want. I want you to manage this in any way, shape, or form you see fit that will bring you glory. Whatever that is, I'm willing. And then he owns the problems, and he owns the solutions. And one of the things that I have found out in these decades of living is God's solutions are almost always unexpected. How many times does God solve your problems in ways you go, I never thought of that. Who would have done that like that? Only God. Because he's God, right? You're his children. He loves you. He loves to show himself strong on your behalf. Our problem is not... God's faithfulness, our problem is we put God in our box and we say, God, here's the problem, here's the solution. God says, number one, my understanding of the problem is far greater than yours, and my solution, I want to bless you beyond what you can comprehend. And that leads into the next one. God delights to show himself strong to those who follow him with their whole hearts, like it, Judah did. God gives peace to his people, even in the middle of crisis and conflict. See, we think that the solution to peace is no, con no, no crisis, no problem. Lord, I will have peace when there's no problem. Well, in that case, you're never going to have peace because you're going to have problems until the day you die, right? It's the grace of God that gives us peace in the middle of the conflict. That's supernatural. And then lastly, compromising with evil is always evil, no matter how good your objective is. And we get into trouble here when we think God needs our help. God, this is a goal I believe you want me to do. And he might. But we get ahead of God. We try and help him. We're impatient. So we're like Sarah who says, Abraham, why don't you just go into my handmaid, Hagar, and let's have a baby with her. And that's a human solution, right? And that's compromised because of against God's will. And the Arabs and the Jews have been fighting for 4,000 years. Compromising with evil creates consequences. All right. Thank you. I'm out of time. I love you all. Thank you for your attention. Keep reading ahead. We'll be back in 2 Kings for the life of Elijah next week, Lord willing. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.